welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. All right, good morning, everyone. You've made it to our last sermon in this series on the book of Jonah. And we've been learning about a God of second chances and how we serve the sovereign God whose will cannot be thwarted. And yet, the same God invites us into joining on his mission to spread his word to a world in need. Now, like we see in a lot of uh, our television shows, you get a recap and something to give you a recap. So previously on Jonah, the runaway prophet, uh, we see that Jonah flees to Tarshish to avoid God's mission, and he ends up endangering these pagan sailors on the ship who are ultimately saved by Jonah's sacrificial act of being thrown into the sea. And then God extends his mercy to Jonah by saving him through a giant fish, swallowing Jonah up and then vomiting him, yes, vomiting him onto dry land. And then it seems that Jonah has this come to Jesus moment comes to his senses during this heartfelt prayer, and he obeys God to go to Nineveh to preach. But as we found out last week, that this great revival amongst the pagans in Nineveh, it was never followed up by Jonah, and Jonah missed the opportunity for God's word to take root in these Ninevites. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 1, and it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. We see that Jonah keeps refusing the opportunity to join God's mission time after time. And yet we see God who remains steadfast to pursue Jonah. We see that Jonah refuses to celebrate that the whole city has turned towards Yahweh and God keeps pursuing Jonah towards obedience. See, Jonah right now is the guy in the back of the Billy Graham crusade who is complaining and throwing a fit that all these people are coming forward for prayer. He's the guy that hopes that the power goes out and that everyone's car gets broken into because Jonah just can't stand that God's mercy is coming to people that he thinks don't deserve it. That's what Jonah is doing. He's like the grumpy guy at church complaining that the new person took his seat in his pew. That's Jonah. Yahweh is giving Jonah another chance to do things right in this passage. And Jonah is destined to be confronted by the same stubborn sins he refuses to repent of. And God will continue to confront us in the same stubborn sins. He'll give us opportunity after opportunity to grow where we are stuck to correct our wayward ways, to let go of things that are holding us down. Aren't we so blessed to have a God who is so patient with us, his wayward children? This is the God we're going to take a look at today. We're going to see that, first of all, God is kind. Take a look at verse 4, if you're following along with me. It says, the Lord said, Jonah, do you, well, do, you do well to be angry? I love that question. I want you to imagine Jonah on the Dr. Phil show. How many of you have ever seen Dr. Phil on TV? Okay. Imagine him on Dr. Phil's show, and, and Jonah is sharing about his three days in the belly of the giant fish and his reluctant obedience to preach to Nineveh and his anger towards God's mercy towards the Ninevites. And then Dr. Phil turns to Jonah and asks, in that Texas drawl like only Dr. Phil can do, 
So Jonah, how's that working for you? How's all that anger working for you, Jonah? How's your life doing stuck in so many ways? See, God is being extraordinarily kind, but also perfectly perceptive, like only a holy and perfect God could do. He's being kind towards Jonah. Jonah deserves far worse than a kind question from the Lord. Do do you do well to be angry? Is being angry working for you, Jonah? He deserves far worse than that, but it's God's kindness. But perceptive. In a sense, God is placing a mirror in front of Jonah's face and saying, what do you see? How is all that anger working? And then God puts a mirror in front of you today. How's your bitterness working for you? How's that grudge working for you? How's holding on to that regret? How's that working for you? God does that with us today. See, God is trying to help Jonah see that his anger not only had caused Jonah to miss an opportunity to be a blessing, to get the word of God out to people who are hungry for his word, but it also was his anger was imprisoning Jonah himself. Not only was Jonah's disobedience hurting others, it was hurting himself. And God is placing a mirror before us to say, don't you understand your disobedience hurts you, not just others? It's not in your best interest to disobey me. When you demand your freedom from having to obey God fully, you end up imprisoning yourself in your own self-defeating choices. It was uh, July 35 years ago when God spoke to me. I was angry and depressed with life, and God broke through my angry heart at a place called Hume Lake Christian Camps. And I heard the Lord speak to me like I've never heard him since. He says, Tim, I love you. Why don't you love yourself? Why are you so angry? I made you. I don't make mistakes. And God was so kind to me because I deserved much worse. God could have said a lot of things that I deserved, but he came to me with kindness. He put a mirror in front of my face. How's that working for you, Tim? All that regret. See, I was angry like Jonah at God's injustice. I was angry that people who did worse things than me had a better life than me. Anyone else feel like that sometimes? I was angry that God didn't make me as strong and athletic as my older brother, the star football player, the star track team guy, and a 4.0 GPA. Oh, my goodness. Who can live with that? I was angry that, my, that God didn't make me as good-looking and popular as my sister, homecoming queen, blah, 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 blah. God, why did they get that and I didn't? I was angry that, God, he could have made me taller and more talented. I could have been the first Asian point guard in the NBA. And God instead gave my prayer request to Jeremy Lin. See, I had a reason to be angry. Don't you? Regret what could have been, what should have been. Well, how's that working for you? God in his kindness might be asking you today. How's that all working for you? See, but God in that moment took away my anger. He took away my regret. I sensed the presence of God for the first time. And I know not all of you have, and that's okay if you haven't. But God in his kindness revealed his presence in this inner voice. And and I believed. And I turned to him. 
He did not have to be so kind, but in God's perfect kindness and his perfect wisdom, he chose to me in that moment to reveal himself in that way. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. And I don't even expect it to happen like that again for me. God chose to do that. And so friends, I'll tell you this, no matter if God speaks to you, to you the way he spoke to me, all of us need to stop living life of regret and anger that imprisons us and bitterness. And what ifs and what? Well, we gotta live the life that we are given with the Lord who's present and say, Lord, show me the way. And so we start living a life of surrender to the God who made you, who made me. Say, Lord, I don't understand. I have a lot of good questions, but in your wisdom, I'm gonna trust you. That's the mirror that gets placed in front of our face because it's not working any other way, any other person you're following, any other regret that drives you. It doesn't work. God wants what's best for you, but it does involve you surrendering to him, confessing your sin, saying, I'm so sorry, Lord, for choosing another way I thought was smarter than your way because your way is kind of hard, and it is hard. God made you. See, Jonah's anger, I believe, blinded him to God's love, blinded him to God's kindness. But friends, let me tell you, don't miss God's kindness today. We see not only God is kind, we see God is patient. Jonah 4, 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Now, earlier in the book of Jonah, we learned that it would probably take him about three days to walk the breadth of this large city preaching uh, about God's wrath to come and and we see that perhaps this is maybe the fourth day when Jonah's done preaching. He sets up a shelter just outside the city. For whatever reason, doesn't decide to stay in. He goes outside. Now, the booth that Jonah sets up, it reminds us of probably some kind of crude shelter that maybe the, the Hebrews, as they wandered the wilderness for 40 years, maybe something that they would have done, or maybe it was the shelters that the, the Hebrews built to commemorate the wilderness wanderings, generations, would, they would have a, a week, it's a festival of the tents, and they would build a shelter and remember their life following God in the wilderness by building a booth, a tent. Maybe that's what it was like, something to give him some shade in a hot desert while he's sitting outside of the city. Now, Jonah 4.5 continues, he, Jonah, sat under it, the booth, in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Let's time out. What's Jonah doing? He is waiting to see if God's wrath is going to come down on the city still. That's the state of Jonah's heart, I believe. He's sitting outside of the city waiting to say, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. That's what Jonah's doing to see what will happen. I think he's not able to let go. Now, he's waiting to see if God's rightful wrath will come down on the Ninevites, but guess what? He's sulking, I believe. Or to use a sports analogy, he's sitting on the sidelines instead of being in the game. Any former athletes out there like me, right? Jonah benched himself when the game was on the line. He's outside the city sulking when he should be inside the city serving. Inside the city are peoples whose hearts are ready to be molded. And outside the city is a prophet whose heart is getting harder by the minute. 
Jonah 4, 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So what God does in his patience and his kindness, he decides to comfort his sulking prophet through the miraculous growth of a plant, instantaneous growth. Jonah is outside the city for some time, perhaps even weeks in his booth when somehow it wasn't good enough for shade. God sends his plant to provide him shade. If you remember from a previous section in Jonah, uh, God declares that in 40 days, in 40 days, then the judgment will come. So maybe Jonah's sitting at the si- outside the city for weeks, waiting to see if the judgment will come. And his shelter fails. And God is demonstrating his kindness and his patience by providing his disobedient prophet some relief from the desert heat. The shade of a plant to help Jonah in his distress. And I think, again, giving him a chance to change. God's kindness, God's patience. But then we're going to see that, don't forget, God's in charge, no matter how patient and kind he is. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Let's pause there again. For those of you who are followers of Christ, there are going to be times in your Christian journey when even in your disobedience, God's patient and kind care will continue to be revealed in your life. Why? In hopes that you would come to your senses. God's kindness, God's patience, even in your disobedience like Jonah is being. God's kindness and God's patience. So yes, God is patience, even in our disobedience, even in our holding on to sin. But never forget that God is in charge. God patiently provides comfort, but now God wisely begins to discipline disobedient Jonah. Now keep this in mind. The motive behind God's discipline is restoration, not destruction. God never disciplines his children to destroy us. Hebrews 12.10 says, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. God disciplines us because he loves us and his goal is to restore us to right relationship with him. And so Jonah, we see, is being given the chance to recognize the hardness of his heart, the sulking of his spirit, the disobedience of his demeanor. God is being kind and patient But don't forget God is in charge. He has every right to withhold his kindness and mercy. Why would he do that? That you might come to your senses and turn to him and to follow him. God is in charge and will lovingly use discipline to turn us back to him. And discipline looks forward while mere punishment looks backward. See, our good God is always doing discipline because of your future self, because he doesn't want to leave your present self stuck as it is. That's the heart of God. It's not just being mean. He's doing it for your future self that it won't be stuck in your present. He loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. How is God wanting you to change? What is that future self that God wants to shape you into beginning today? Again, 
What are the things we hold on to too tightly that God wants us to let go of? God is patiently waiting. In terms, we see it in verse 8. It says, and Jonah asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. See, Jonah is still fighting God, and God is patiently waiting for Jonah to repent. Jonah is wanting to die, and God wants Jonah to live. He wants Jonah to come alive to the opportunity to serve God. He wants to come alive to the opportunity to be a blessing to someone else. God wants Jonah to come alive to the opportunity to use his gifts and his voice and his time and this opportunity to show God's kindness, that people might come to know him. God doesn't want Jonah to die. He wants him to live. He wants him to come alive. And Jonah is refusing. He wants to stay dead. Jonah seems stuck in his judgmental ways. And what we see is Jonah is rejecting God's message of grace for the Ninevites. But ultimately, Jonah is also rejecting God's message of grace to himself. Don't you realize that's what you do when you withhold kindness and mercy in the name of God from others? You're really rejecting it for yourself, in a sense, too. You're creating your own prison. And God wants you to be alive, not dead. We see in verse 9 that God is also a questioner. And said, God says to Jonah, do you, Jonah, do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. There's that word again. Jonah thought that God's kindness only came to Hebrews like him. His hands are gripped tightly around his own judgmentalism. They're not good enough to be saved, or they're so bad, there's no way they ever deserve kindness. They don't deserve mercy. See, but grace can only come to, and be received by empty hands that have let go of other saviors. If you hold on to other things, you're making yourself the judge instead of God, and God will not allow you to take his place. When you hold on to that anger, you hold on to that bitterness and hold on to that regret. You're saying, God, I know better than you. I'm the judge, not you. There's no space for God's mercy and grace to come into your life. You keep pushing him away. Jonah's really testing God's patience, God's kindness. You know, the word angry comes up five times just in this chapter. Jonah is imprisoned by his refusal to give up his anger and to take in God's mercy. And so God questions Jonah like a good parent to a child. Chapter 4, verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. I think God is saying something like this. Jonah, you care more about a plant dying than people dying. You didn't even deserve the plant. You didn't grow the plant. I did it. I have every right to grant mercy and to withhold it, Jonah. Jonah, can't you see the lesson I'm trying to teach you? And then God asks in verse 11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know the right hand from their left and also much cattle? God knows the population of the city, and he also knows its livestock. 
God knows everything. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything you're holding onto tightly that is not leaving room for his mercy and his grace. He knows that you can't hide it. And he asks us a question, just like he asked Jonah. See, God questions Jonah, why don't you care, Jonah? And he asks us, don't you want lost sheep to know the shepherd? That's Luke 15. Don't you want sick people to get healed? That's Matthew 9. And so God asks us, are the things that are on God's heart the things that burden your heart? It's a mirror in front of our face. He asks us to look at our hands, what we're holding on to. Are we making space for the burdens on God's heart to be the burdens on our heart? God's a questioner. He's asking you that question, I believe. Thousands of years later, after this was written, the story happened today by the power of the Holy Spirit, asking you, why don't you care about the things I care about? Follow me. But we're going to see that God is a compassionate God. In fact, he says in Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh? The, the Hebrew word for pity can be translated compassion. It could also be translated heartbroken. And so what the passage is saying is that Jonah was heartbroken over the dead plant, but he failed to have compassion for lost people. And we see throughout Jonah that Jesus is a true and better Jonah because Jesus had true compassion for the lost. His heart broke for the lost. The same way that God's heart breaks for the Ninevites, Jesus' heart breaks for the lost. In Luke 19, it says that Jesus saw the city and he wept over it. He saw lost people and the lost culture and lost systems and he wept. And in Luke 13, Jesus says, how often have I longed to gather your children together? His heart longs for lost people like a good parent weeps over a lost child, a wayward kid. And hanging from the cross, Jesus looks at those persecuting him in Luke 23 and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from the left. That's the same meaning. See, Jesus is the true and better Jonah, hanging from the cross, doing what Jonah refused to do, Jesus does. He shows compassion. His heart breaks. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is not saying that they aren't guilty of wrongdoing, because they are. We are. But what Jesus is saying to the Father is, Father, I will take on their guilt that they might take on my righteousness. God of justice, I know your wrath must come down on rebellious creatures, but place your rightful wrath on me. Count my perfection as theirs. Count their sin as mine. I will take their place. They don't know what they're doing. That's what Jesus does. See, Jesus failed to weep for Nineveh, and instead Jonah, wanted, Jonah failed to weep for Nineveh, and Jonah wanted God's wrath to come down on them while ignoring his own faults that, against the God that he served. But Jesus is the true 
and better, Jonah. You know, if you look into the Gospels for all the emotions that Jesus displays, the phrase that you'll find is the most common is this, that he was moved with compassion. That's what our God is like, revealed in Jesus Christ. He was moved by brokenness for the world. Jesus was deeply connected to the pain of humanity. Jesus was deeply connected to my pain, how he zeroed in on me out of all the billions of people on the, on the earth, how he could care about me and my pain. I don't get it, but he did. Of the billions of people on the earth, he cares about your pain. Heartbroken that you don't trust him. Heartbroken that you're holding on. Heartbroken that you're not living the life to the full that he has for you. The scripture says that the Holy Spirit grieves for us. The scripture says that Jesus wept even at Lazarus' death, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus just moments later. And God, Yahweh, weeps and his heart grieves, I believe, for Nineveh, for 120,000 lost people. You see, we serve a compassionate God who grieves over our brokenness, our lostness, our rebellion, our regrets, our sin, and yet God still comes near. What a good God. You know, just the other day in our home, we have these kind of tall ceilings with these skylights that are clear. The sun comes in and we had a hummingbird come inside our house. I'm like, oh, great, a visitor. I'm like, oh, no, a hummingbird is inside our house. And I wish I could tell you the story ended well, some little Warning, it didn't end well. I did everything I could. I Googled. I put everything in red out, out very clearly. They like red. We opened every door, every window, every screen. I put out the bird feeder in red with a fresh batch of sugar water that I made personally. It's there. And we were quiet and we waited. But no matter what we did, that hummingbird would not come down from our ceiling rafters and didn't make it. No matter what I did, and my wife Katie said, Tim, this is absolutely a sermon illustration. <laughs> you have to share it. Who refused to connect, she said, Tim, if only we could become a hummingbird. I mean, literally, that's what we needed to do. If I could become a hummingbird and then fly up there and say, guess what? You're not gonna get out this way. Trust me, follow me, I know the way out. And you have to go down, you have to go a different way to get out, to find life, to be saved. You gotta go this way. Nothing I could do on my own. But thank God we have a God who shrunk himself down, not losing his godness, became fully human and came to us in our distress and said, come follow me, trust me. I know the way. I, I know it doesn't seem like it. I know it's not logical in your mind. I know, I know you may not trust me, but trust me, I know the way to life. Trust me, the way that you're going is a path towards death. Trust me, the things you're holding on to will not fulfill you. Trust me, I know the way. If only I could have become a hummingbird for that moment. Now, we don't know for sure what happened to Nineveh. We can guess maybe that God's wrath did not come. There's no record that God's wrath came on that city. 
And in verse 11, God says, And should not I pity Nineveh? What happened to Jonah? Did Jonah finally come to his senses? Did Jonah finally repent for his disobedience? Did his heart ever soften? We don't know. And why would the Bible allow such uncertainty about such an important story in the Bible? Why does he leave us with this cliffhanger? No answer is given. The question for Jonah remains unanswered. Now, I'd like to think that Jonah did turn his life around at some point, but I don't know. Speculation. But perhaps the author of the book of Jonah purposely left the ending open-ended because the most important answer is the one that the reader will give. Do you have compassion for the lost? Does your heart grieve for the things that grieve the heart of God? Perhaps that's the most important thing today, how you will answer God's question to your story, will you care for the things that God cares about? And I'm so grateful for Elder Siska and her leadership of our missions endeavors here at our church. We dedicate a significant amount of your donations every year to bless and partner with these amazing missionaries near and far And so I praise God for our missionaries, for Bonnie McKenzie, who's helping to translate the gospel into a language that doesn't yet have the gospel for that people group. I praise God for Greg Ogden, who disciples people right here in the United States and around the world, and for Natalie Richards and her work with Young Life and helping young people who've never heard about Jesus discover that Jesus is kind and good, and he's full of life and full of light and the only way and the only truth and the life. Thank God for Natalie. Thank God for Hope Unlimited and the kids that they literally save from the streets and save from despair. For the ministry and the houseboats that's going to happen this next week, praise God for that. I praise God for, for Elder Becky and the neighborhood outreach she has, sharing the gospel to neighbors who don't know yet Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I'm grateful for God and praising him for the food pantry that Martha and Amy restock every day, making sure that hundreds of hungry people and elderly and veterans and families can get basic necessities, spiritual food and physical food. Praise God. And praise God for all the different ways that I don't even know, but as I look at I know some of the ways that you're serving, you're obeying the word of God, you're listening to the heart of God, you have a burden for the things that it burdened God's heart. Amen. Praise God for the ways that we serve in Jesus' name, for the things that burden God's heart have become our burdens. You know, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Friends, we are given a very short life to live. And what matters most is that in this beautiful but broken world, we do not let all the bad news we hear drown out the good news of the gospel. We cannot allow the anger in our hearts to imprison us or the needs in this world to paralyze us. Those are two ways that we get stuck. See, the hope that we have is that one day Jesus will return and make all things new. And so until that day, Christians, we get to give a world a preview of the goodness of God to come. 
as we share the gospel, as we feed the hungry, as we make sacrifices so that lost people can experience the love of God, so lost people can confess their sins, so lost people can put their faith in the one true God. We help people get to know this Christ through every little thing we do in his name. So praise God. Don't get paralyzed by all the bad news. And don't imprison yourself in the own, your own things you will refuse to let go of. I want to close with this one story. Some of you uh, know this name Robert the Bruce. Today is his birthday. He doesn't go to our church, but he's from a film called Braveheart. He's a historical character. Today is his birthday. There's a picture of him. I've actually met him before. You have to ask him about the story later about that. But in the movie Braveheart, it shares a story of Scotland's pursuit of freedom from the tyranny of the English under the leadership of William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson. That's another story with Mel you have to ask me about later, too. So there was a battle where Wallace and his men are fighting the English, and Wallace thought he had the backing of the Scottish nobles, including Robert the Bruce, but they had been bought off by the King of England and betrayed Wallace on the battlefield, leaving him and his men to be routed by the English. See, Robert the Bruce, at the end of the movie, he's burdened by his act of betrayal. And Robert the Bruce Sr. consoles his son. He says, son, we must have alliance with England to prevail here. You achieved that. You saved your family. You increased your land. In time, you will have all the power in Scotland. And then Robert the Bruce says this, lands, titles, men, power, nothing. I have nothing. Men fight for me because if they do not, I throw them off my land and I starve their wives and children. Those men who bled the ground red at Falkirk fought for William Wallace. He fights for something that I never had and I took it from him when I betrayed him. I saw it in his face on the battlefield and it's tearing me apart. And then his father says, son, all men betray, all men lose heart. And then Robert the Bruce says, I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe like he does. I will never be on the wrong side again. You know, we don't know if Jonah ever changed his heart. But the more important question is if you give over your heart to the Lord and his will. Our God is a patient questioner. And he's a compassionate consoler, but he awaits our answer. Will we obey? In a sense, we all must answer the challenge that Joshua gave the Israelites as they are about to enter the promised land, which says this, choose this day whom you will serve. I'm telling you, friends, choose Jesus. He's the only one who knows the way out. Stop following other false ways. It only leads to death. And God wants you to come alive as you obey him, as you ask him to make your heart soft and burdened for the things that burden his heart. Would you pray that with me today? Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize your presence. Father, we know you are good and kind, but help us to believe Holy Spirit, we thank you that you live in us as followers of Christ. You reside in us. You are a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so for us followers of Christ, Lord, we recommit ourselves to following you. Our whole life is so short and it all belongs to you. Forgive us for holding on to other things 
that are less of life. Lord, open up our hands and pour out your mercy, your grace, your wisdom. Give me the power to obey fully, Lord. Lord, turn my heart towards yours. And I pray for anyone who has never yet said yes to you, Jesus, for the first time, perhaps, would you speak to them? Would you put a mirror in front of their face? Would you help them to see what they're holding on to, whether it's unbelief or false gods or holding on to simply themselves? Help them to let go and to grab onto your grace, confessing their sins, saying yes to you, Jesus, that I cannot live this life without you and your forgiveness. Help me to find true life in you, Jesus Christ. I give my life to you. Oh Lord, I pray for anyone who said that prayer that they would know that they're sealed in you, that they can begin a new life following you in your word, faithful to obey. Bless them, Lord. Bless all of us as we continue to sing and point our attention to you, our good God. And it's in your name that we pray, King Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.